This episode of The New Disruptors is brought to you in part by Born SQL. If your business uses Microsoft SQL Server and you need some help, talk to bornsql.ca. Listen to the show for a special discount. This episode also made possible in part by our patrons, Abraham Finberg and Gravity Fish. You can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash New Disruptors to find out more about backing this show for as little as $1 a month. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks you to fill out this simple form, send it in with a self-addressed stamped envelope, and wait four to six weeks for a reply. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. You can be a patron of The New Disruptors for as little as a buck a month. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash new disruptors for details. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You should also check out Gweek. It's a weekly podcast with the editors of Boing Boing in which they talk about making stuff and their favorite books, comic books, apps, music, and a lot more. Maxwell Salzberg knows what it's like to have a lot of people giving him money who want something in return. He and three colleagues created the Diaspora Project. It was one of Kickstarter's early blockbuster successes. More recently, he co-founded BackerKit, which is a company that helps people with the problem of managing crowdfunding backers, their responses, and their expectations. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Maxwell. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Now, you contacted me because I was in... um... (laughs) was in some straits. I was dealing with the aftermath of the magazine Kickstarter and spent, and uh, wound up spending days and days longer programming and integrating into our systems. And you said, hey, you know, we have this thing. And I'm like, oh, I should have asked you sooner. I just, I thought it would be easy. Is this a common reaction? People get into it and say, well, you know, managing the surveys and responses and, you know, tracking, that's not that big a deal. I can do it myself. Yeah, actually, I mean, it's something that I think People are so worried about just being successful on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, they kind of uh, put off figuring out how they're actually going to do it. Um, yeah, it's definitely a, it, it's a pretty conversa- pretty funny conversation when I reach out to people and I kind of say like, hey, I know five problems you don't know you're going to have yet. Um, please let me help because uh, I've been there. Well, yeah, let's let's start with diaspora because uh, you were or you were in college when uh, you and uh, three of your uh, colleagues there launched this effort that was kind of a, uh, people are getting concerned about centralization of information. This is 2010. I mean, God, we were worried then. Uh, we should have been even more worried in retrospect, but about yeah, Facebook. Two, two years too early, probably. <laughs> oh, man. Facebook's growth and all that. And you said, look, there's a way we could make something that would allow independent control of your individual information and still have a social network and federate together rather than require centralized ownership by you know only for-profit corporations. How, how did Diaspora come about? Because that's a pretty big thing to, to – a piece to bite off while you're still in school and, and to sort of not challenge Facebook but come up with something that could be as useful to people as Facebook. Yeah, I mean I think it really started kind of as a lot of you know good projects do and that it was just me and three of my buddies like we were just having fun over pizza some nights after school, you know, just staying up late. We were like how hard could it really be to set up, you know, a network? sort of a network of nodes where people's social information can talk to each other. It really just kind of started kind of out of our curiosity of just like, 
you know, why is everything centralized? Why does it have to be that way? And I think when we started, you know, we didn't necessarily have really grandiose uh, expectations for what we were trying to do. Initially, we, you know, back then, I mean, the, the the most popular project I think previously raised like fifty or sixty thousand dollars from a few thousand people. I mean, this is like prehistoric crowdfunding times, basically. <laughs> um, so, you know, we were like, I was graduating, and two of um, so it was another one of my partners, and another two people were sort of in between you know, their third or second or third year, um, we kind of thought it would be fun to like work on it for a summer. Like what if instead of me having to delay the inevitable of getting a real job, um, you know, we could like get a summer, we could just like go live in our parents' basements and like for, we're trying to raise $10,000 so we could just eat ramen and have four of us just see what we could, see what we could make, make it open source, put it on GitHub. I ultimately, I don't know, put it on our resume, see if we could help, help us get jobs. That's pretty modest. Ten ten thousand yeah. dollars was actually. I mean, right in those days, that was that was not an insignificant amount for Kickstarter. There have been plenty of projects that had raised ten grand, but it wasn't uh, as typical as like maybe fifty thousand dollars is today. So you know, ten grand, you're like, all right, this may be a stretch, right? But you know, we can do it. We'll we'll prove that we have whatever. But it turned out to be a pretty modest goal by accident. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that was probably, in retrospect, totally unrealistic. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, but certainly, like, I mean, the funny thing is, too, is, like, I remember with uh, one of my partners, like, the day before we launched, like, we had a big argument about whether it, the goal should be $9,000 or $10,000. And I just, like, remember screaming about it, <laughs> that, like, it was going to make some sort of big difference. I mean, because we just... We had no idea. You were about sticker um, shock. If people saw ten grand, they're like, "Oh, that's unrealistic." But nine grand, like, "Oh, well, nine grand, we could see." Yeah, right. And and arguing about whether that actually would make a significance to whether we could do it or not is also hilarious in retrospect. But but yeah, I mean, it was a totally different world, and it's pretty. You know, Kickstarter was not something that people really knew about I mean, back in two thousand ten. And yeah, and then basically, like after a week, we after we launched. I mean, you know, we didn't even do any marketing. I mean, there were no best practices around crowdfunding um, when we were doing this, <laughs> both for the campaigns and afterwards. And you know, we just really like emailed a few of our friends who I thought would be interested. And and after about a week, it blew up. And then the next thing I knew is like our pictures on the front page of the New York Times website. And, you know, it's like being republished in all sorts of different languages. And, you know, a lot of times it was the first time Kickstarters actually ever got mentioned in the New York Times or something was like the Diaspora article. So it definitely went nuclear and so much so that this thing we started in our like 100 square foot office that we thought nobody was going to really care about except for us um, all of a sudden had all this hype and people were really excited about it. I mean, it really resonated with people. But you had the one lucky thing, which is that it was a software project as opposed to some of the early uh, hardware projects that blew up and then makers were sort of, you know, it was sort of a lot of control. Like I've talked to the Glyph guys at Studio Need a number of times. And, and, um, you know, if you expect to make 100 things and you have to make 5,000, it's everything changes. But for software, you have a different set of expectations, but you didn't have to scale necessarily. It's not like, okay, we need 100 times as many people. It's like, no, the project fundamentally was the same, but I would think you had instead this incredible external and internal pressure that was, you know, 20 times larger than you imagined, as opposed to like the scale of the project being 20 times larger. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. The expectations skyrocketed, which is, you know, we sort of like did nothing to, to like, uh, 
you know, certainly we didn't even know what was happening. I mean, it was like all totally a blur. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, even some of the funnier things, and you know, these aren't necessarily earth shattering, but it's like, you know, originally as like a total token, as like a random thing to give you if you were going to give us five bucks, we were going to like send it to you on a CDR, um, like the day we launched. Totally as just like, I mean, it was. I mean, you know, whatever, with continuous deployment and stuff, it's, it's useless, basically, the moment right, it's, yeah. it's burned. But, you know, it's supposed to be like, oh, what do we give people? And we literally thought, you know, oh, we're going to burn like 100 of these on our laptops one day over like two pizzas. But then when it ended up being like 6,500 people, like we have to like figure out how to mass produce a worthless CD and also like, you know, buy 6,000 T-shirts and get them shipped around the world. Which, oh, my God. You know, yeah. Which, you know, is, is, you know, we're not talking an earth-shattering idea here, but it's possibly a lot of money for something that you thought was, you know, at a scale of a few hundred is not – well, even that is actually harder than everybody anticipates. But when it becomes this, like, giant worldwide thing, you, you sort of – we just thought we were going to get to, like, hole up, write some code for three months, and all of a sudden, you know, you have 6,500 people who – uh, like I say, like want something you haven't made yet well, a and, lot. And you're not, you know, you guys were not in the t-shirt business. You weren't in the CD replication business. You know, you weren't exactly even in the software business. You were programmers, but you hadn't yeah. run a software. Uh, you hadn't run a software yeah. business at this point. And suddenly you have 200 grand minus, you know, 10% or so uh, in your hands. You've got 6,500 people looking at you and you have physical stuff that needs to go out at some point, And then all this coding thing. So I'm just, you know, I don't remember reading after the fact. I read, you know, some of the, some follow-up coverage, but, what, you know, state of mind, like, how did you guys get through that period where you, you know, went from like, ah, into, into you know, actual production, start really coding and working steadily away? Well, I mean, you know, it was luckily, like, we did have some help, but I mean, the attitude that we sort of had was kind of like, you know, obviously we got to know the Kickstarter guys pretty well and they were super stoked because, you know, this was huge for them too. But, you know, at the end of the day, and it's still kind of true, they kind of give you the list of everybody's email. They give you how much they gave you and they're sort of like, good luck. Like, <laughs> you know, and, you know. Bon and, voyage. Yeah, so nice exactly. You. No, it's, I have the same right. right. They're, yeah. they're incredibly nice and supportive, like at every stage of the thing. But. Right, at the fulfillment, this is where we get to the pain point, right? It's like at the whatever your thing you've promised people or things in some cases, uh, this is where they, you know, they're like, here's the money. Um, it's in your account. And uh, that was great. Thanks, you know, yeah. and yeah. okay, see you guys. And, and which is right. They cut off a specific piece of what they want to do. And it ends at a point that even though I thought I was expecting it, it was a little abrupt for me where I'm like, oh my God, now I'm on my own. It felt like when I came from, from the hospital with my first child, with my wife and we're like, <laughs> and her parents stayed with us for a bit and then they left. And we're like, oh my God, someone gave us a baby. What do we yeah. do now? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. A backer kit. I don't know. We, we call that the, the oh shit moment. Every everybody has it. Um, about yeah. forty eight hours after oh, their project's over, they're just you know the serotonin rush of getting an email every time you go get a cup of coffee in that first thirty days, and then someone gave you fifty bucks. Um, you know that's over, <laughs> and now you know reality does set in, and it's it's you know it can be really scary. And don't get me wrong, it's a it's an amazing problem to have. Right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Having don't thousands write. of people who have given you money on the like thank you internet, but it is scary, right? Like you do have there's you know. Every type of project creator, whether you raise a thousand dollars or a million dollars, like you know, you as like an individual, as like a maker, put you know a hundred percent of your social capital on the line yeah. for every project that you do, right? And I think people are inherently good and inherently want to do all this stuff. They don't realize though that they're going to inherit like five full time jobs in addition to actually making the thing that they raise the money for. Yeah, and even um, if you budget for it. Now, you guys were in that unusual position because you were budgeting essentially for your own time and a little bit of physical stuff, but 
then you got this. I mean, this like just the T-shirt thing alone, you know, which wasn't anticipated. Yeah. Uh, and the CDs, and suddenly, I mean, I remember um, Rich Stevens, who uh, has not been on the show, but should be on the show. He's a, car- a digital uh, cartoonist, uh, Diesel Sweeties. Uh, it's his strip. He, um, I think, went out to raise three thousand, raised sixty-five grand to do a cartoon collection, which he hadn't done before. And uh, one of the rewards was a custom-made red robot. <laughs> USB drive, which in the end, yeah. I think the manufacturer part wasn't so bad. But then he starts researching how to duplicate the contents of all the stuff he wants to, and he had to make hundreds. And it wound up, I can't remember how many days he had to spend with multiple USB burners and like this entire amount of expertise he never, he did not have, did not even think he would ever have to acquire in his life. And then suddenly, no, I'm sorry, you're now in the USB replication business for like a week or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you have to learn about the whole supply chain. And it, it is pretty amazing, you know, how how just adding a little bit of complexity to sort of rewards goes off the sort of happy path. Of like, <laughs> this was yeah. easy and like it just a little bit too much. And then it, it gets really difficult, like exponentially more difficult, like, you know, with every tiny step you take. But I mean, with, with diaspora, I mean, yeah, certainly like, you know, we didn't think much of any, you know, like that any of the rewards were going to be too big of a deal. Like worst case scenario, we would DIY it ourselves. Right. But I mean, I, I was really, the, I was really fortunate that actually, like, I had a my aunt actually like had like a side T-shirt business for like sell T-shirt to frats or something. Uh, so oh, luckily, man, like, great. I actually had somebody, but that was sort of like you know not the initial plan. I thought we were just gonna you know order them online. How hard could it be? So luckily, like, I had that. But I mean, a hilarious thing was well, one, we didn't expect we were gonna raise so much money, so all the money was like gonna hit my student checking account, like you know, $170,000, oh. um, you know, yeah, because you, we, you get we, the bank freeze. You have all the problems with like receiving money at that scale. The banks freak out. Yeah. And not to mention in 2010 vendors didn't know what crowdfunding was. So no, no t-shirt vendors in the beginning took me seriously when it was like, I need to order 5,000 t-shirts. I'm going to get the money in three weeks. Can you please just like start working with me? Oh yeah. And we, everybody- should, we, we should clarify that. I think I've talked about it in previous podcast, but it's always good to highlight it is that the money clears over time. And, um, I actually have a funny little story, which is, uh, so Kickstarter works with Amazon pay. I'm mean, just, uh, this is for mm-hmm. the listeners benefits, as you know, being okay. involved in this, but so Kickstarter works with, uh, Amazon payments and Indiegogo and the other crowdfunding outfits, uh, work with various ones. And Amazon payments essentially charges credit cards or does electronic clearance or whatever on your behalf as the project maker. So when they charge it, it's like it's like Glenn Fleischman, in my case, you know, a periodical LLC, my company, is charging this money. Amazon is handling it, but the charge is sort of in your name. It's like you had 6,500 different charges for Diaspora, kind of in your name. And Amazon takes its fee out for processing that it has to pay to banks and, and for its profit, pays 5% to Kickstarter off the top, and then it holds the money for a period of time. And they have uh, – you can read on Amazon Payments about these reserve tiers they have, about how they release money and so forth. But typically now it's 14 days from when the money clears from the credit card and is collected and uh, until you can withdraw it. I had this funny thing happen. They pre-cleared me by accident. I took out – almost all the money, not realizing that it would be in reserve. And then they put the reserve on afterwards. Nice. So I got the yeah. money within like an hour and then they're like, whoa, whoa. I mean, I didn't get an email. They're like, okay, you have a negative $49,000 disbursable balance. I'm like, well, I'm glad I did the transfer when I did. But but yeah. that's the thing, right? So you, you already know you're seeing the scale of this thing, but you don't have the money. Amazon's collected it. You're waiting for it to hit. You're thinking, what's going to happen to my bank account, right? When it hits, 
t-shirt people don't trust you. Yeah, I mean, not not to mention, I mean, again, we were the biggest at the time. So, you know, if you thought Amazon was still a little wacky for yours, like this was the first time yes. they were doing something. And I, to be honest, I actually think I remember a similar thing happening to us where at one point I logged in and it said we were negative tens of thousands of dollars. That, and you're like, I don't I yeah. don't have the money to yeah. pay. What the happened yeah. there? Um, uh, you know, uh, so and not to mention even like there's some mundane things like taxes. Like, are they gifts? Are they that I sell people T-shirts? Like, I thought we were making software. Right. Like, the T-shirts were sort of just like a haha. Or, but then it's like, you know, the IRS is going to notice if one hundred fifty thousand dollars shows up in your student checking account. So, like, what the hell are you going to do? It and, is a weird thing, right? Because Amazon has to file a form if yeah. you have more than two hundred payments or twenty thousand dollars in a calendar year. So the well, IRS gets a form, a ten ninety nine K, I think it is, and it says Maxwell got. Yeah. $250,000. So maybe you should, but the thing that's funny is I don't think I've had long, I have to, my accountant, I think is going to be a future guest because he's, um, <laughs> and he's willing to be, we've had so many conversations in the show about tax and he does not want to give opinions about that, what people would use. And we're also in Washington state, which has a peculiar, uh, we have a gross revenue tax here, the business and occupation tax, which is on gross revenues. You don't get to do any deductions. It's not about profit. Uh, and there's many, many categories. So anyway, he and I have had these conversations where I've said, I talked to him before, during, and after the campaign, and I said, uh, you know, I asked like, well, is this subscription revenue because I've allotted $15 to a subscription? Is this, am I selling a book or am I selling a, and what is, and he's like, in our case, in Washington State, you go to the state, you fill out a form, and you get a binding tax ruling, which you can appeal. But once they give you the ruling, you cannot, they can't come after you again for filing your taxes according to the ruling they give you. So you get an absolute definitive statement. I That's don't think good. every state has it, such an easy process. I've had to get three so far for, for my business plus this one because everything is new. And so you're hitting this thing in 2010. Nobody <laughs> knows what's going on. Money's hitting. You don't. It's a yeah. gift. You guys were hoping to eat ramen for the summer. This must have been crazy. Yeah, I mean it was totally insane. And and then there's there's the other side too that we didn't really expect, which again like. The caveat is this is like the world's greatest problem to have exactly. is that we have – we had 6,500 people who were totally stoked for this thing we like made over Domino's Pizza in our office. You know, like uh, you know, we, we just – we had no idea. We, we had no capacity to sort of deal with like all these people who were like trying to help and like wanted to be a part of it and wanted to follow along and uh, you know, give their opinions and give their you – know, to tell us why they gave us the money, you know, these are all like amazing things, but we just literally thought we were going to get to code for three months. And, you know, so we didn't know what to do. So in reality, like the three months that we allotted to code, like I was basically full time doing stuff that was not coding. Let me pause for a moment to tell you about a sponsor that's a little bit different than we often have on this show. During our Kickstarter campaign, one of our reward levels was podcast sponsorship of The New Disruptors. And Randolph West stepped forward to help us out. And I want to tell you about what his company offers. He offers an expert service called Born SQL, Born SQL CA, for people who are running Microsoft SQL Server in a small to medium-sized business and don't, as is typical, have a dedicated database administrator to look after it. If this fits you or your company, listen on. This ends up being the job of a developer and the databases wind up neglected. Usually what happens is someone comments on how slow SQL Server is and it's, it's hard to figure out what to do unless this is something you do all the time. So what Randolph can do is he can take a look at your existing database instances and make recommendations to bring them up to industry standards. He creates a one-off report which includes recommendations on upgrades, maintenance plans, disaster recovery, and performance and best practice improvements at both the hardware and the software level. 
This report will run about 16 to 20 pages, and it includes an Excel workbook with all of the diagnostic information that he extracts from the instance, with an explanation for each spreadsheet. Born SQL is located in the Great North in Canada, and the report is normally $2,500 in Canadian dollars, which is a bargain compared to consulting services and a salary on an ongoing basis. To listeners of the new disruptors, you can get an amazing discount, 750 Canadian dollars off the price. That's just 1750 Canadian dollars, very close right now to American ones that could help turn your business from sluggish to speedy. Once your SQL instances are happy, Randolph has follow-up services that he can charge by the hour or four to help you implement maintenance plans, disaster recovery plans, indexes, and query tuning. He can help someone either on-site in your company or he can offer remote help. So for more information and for your substantial discount as a new Disruptors listener, go to bornsql.ca slash nd. That's B-O-R-N-S-Q-L dot C-A slash N-D, like new Disruptors. Thanks, Randolph, for helping our Kickstarter become a rousing success. And now back to the program. And that's not atypical, right? I mean, that's the thing. This is what you've discovered is yeah. it wasn't that it was – I mean, even though it was new and even though there wasn't experience, this isn't like, okay, and that's the last time anyone's ever had to do that. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, and it's an ongoing thing. And you know, part of it is being naive, but part of it is just like one of the things about sort of this new crowdfunded economy is that like you know, these makers and as crowdfunders, it, you know, it gives you super – Kickstarter and Indiegogo give you superpower to raise money, but they don't give you superpowers to like actually make the thing. And, you know, like we like to tell people and, you know, I guess part of the sales pitch, but like congratulations on your successful project. The easy part is now over. <laughs> um, you know, like you know, know. people don't realize is like, you know, you have to deal with Kickstarter for the 30 days or Indiegogo for 30 days, but then you have to live it, you know, and and let's be perfectly honest, every project, even even, uh, you know, projects that like 90 percent of it gets shipped out totally on time, there's it takes everybody they spend twice as much time of their life dealing with the project than they originally allocated well, isn't that the funny thing there's a, one of the murphy's law is like uh, i forget which one it's something like um the amount of time required to complete a project will fill the amount of time you have or something like that so it doesn't matter how much time you allot to it it will always fill the space or or more i mean i thought i had listened very carefully to all the people I talked to for years about Kickstarter, all these intensive interviews I've been doing on this show, and I still dramatically underestimated the amount of time in the first the next phases are easier. I mean this is the thing I'm sure you guys have found is that uh and, and we should talk about how that played out with Diaspora as a software project is you have these initial crazy intense stages in which you're like you're probably barely sleeping, you're just it's you're happy and insane and you're like, what did I get into? But then you get over the hump and then you have the actual work to do, right? You mm -hmm. did hit that point where you said, okay, the t-shirts are out, the this is that. Now we're going to sit down and program. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, to some degree, we kind of also, like, we did for the rewards, like, we delayed some of the, the rewards and stuff because, obviously, people ultimately gave us money for the code, right? I mean, right. they got a t-shirt, right? At least that's how we looked at it. It's like, we definitely are getting out the t-shirts, but you're giving us money because you want to see Diaspora be a real thing, not because you want a Diaspora t-shirt. So, you know, there was a little bit of, like, trying to parallelize it, not to mention it just took forever how to figure out how to do it. Not to mention that, you know, when you do a lot of custom things like this, especially because Kickstarter is pretty international, too. That's another thing that adds a lot of complexity that people, turns out, like, even in 2000. What is it? Years of 2014. Like <laughs> sh shipping stuff internationally is a disaster. I mean, it, 
it's, oh it's my just God. hard. Let's it, get it, into that too, because I this yeah. is something that I've spent so many hours talking to people, and they, I just had a conversation the other day about the same thing with someone. Like, no matter what problem you have, whether it's Kickstarter or life, I think is is usually a big hunk of it. Like ninety or ninety five percent of a thing is the easy part. And then the remaining five or 10%, you're like, well, now I can, that'll take longer. That'll take as much time as that first 95%. But then it turns out that 5% of that remaining 5% also takes as long as that. And then there's like 5% of that that might take. So you're like, okay, that took four times as long because each 5% took as much as the first 95%. Yes. It's definitely, well, yeah, we can get shipping. But one thing I did want to say about (laughs) diaspora, that's kind of crazy. Um, that this is something that's true for all Kickstarter projects, and it'd be interesting to hear. Um, so for the the surveys, right? So you have this ability to sort of collect information because one of the interesting things about crowdfunding, you know, is you're basically just committing to pay money, and then at some later date you're charged. But you know, you don't necessarily collect up front like here's what I'm going to get because you don't necessarily know the kick, the project itself is going to be successful, right? Right? And you know, it makes this makes sense because Kickstarter wants it makes it you know easy as possible for you to pledge your twenty five dollars, so they don't want to ask you fifty questions about it immediately um because it's supposed to also be to pledge to the project you know they maintain you're not buying anything you're pledging to the project and i'd I'd actually kind of generally agree with that um Mm -hmm. but so you're collecting so you have to send out the survey to sort of collect like hey what t-shirt size you want or what color bobble do you want or where do you tell me your address where should i ship this to if it's international like what's your phone number i need that but the thing that's kind of crazy and i think they've definitely seemed to have gotten better where they sort of put some limitations but yeah i fulfilled everything for diaspora and we fulfilled everything for diaspora in december of of 2010 mhm someone filled out my survey yesterday yeah this gets into that that uh, existential issue of so kickstarter says very prominently and you know reiterated uh i think over almost a year ago we are not a store kickstarter is not a store these are not pre-orders per se like people are making uh you're sort of making a contract with your backers that you're going to give them the thing you say but the money is supposed to be still in kickstarter's formulation it's to support an idea of which there may be a thing you get or something electronic so when you hit that you're like well are you do you really have to send out a t-shirt for that person, like they kind of missed the cutoff for the survey, <laughs> right? But by three, <laughs> three years. years, like maybe it was a couple um, of months. I'm in this, you know, we're only we're making about sixty T-shirts for my project, and it was a super premium item. And as usual, like I got, we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment too. You know, you get this percentage of survey responses initially, which I got, and then you get some more, which I got, and then I start emailing people. I'm like, okay, we can't get the T-shirts printed until we have all the sizes. Then I get some more, and I still have like, I think five people who I've now been in touch with yep. five times through the email they used. And managed to sign up with a Kickstarter who I can't get a response from. And I'm almost at the point where I have to say, these people can't get T-shirts. Or I'll print a few extra men's XL. And if we can, we'll, they'll yeah. get those. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, well, the statute of limitations for when you need to send out the stuff I is I totally. Want to, I want them to have the T-shirt. And uh, I mean, uh, my advice to you and I guess anybody listening is like, I actually think people who have, at least for my on backer kit side of things, the people who are successful, you have to just make a cutoff and say, like, look, I'm not going to make everybody else wait because there's five people. Because I've had people, I've had really, really, really responsible project creators who've like bent over backwards trying to collect yeah. this information, and they can't even get everybody. So, you know, at some point, you just have to say, like, this is the line. I'm going to fulfill this first group. I'm going to deal with this second group of people if I ever hear back from them. Whenever I do, but it, it's very strange. I mean, you know, you'd kind of think like, oh, this person gave me 50 bucks. You'd think they want to like give me their address so I can like send them the thing they gave me 50 bucks for. But 
I don't know. It's kind of just this uh, very strange, you know. Again, not, it's not earth shattering, but we like to call with with backer kit. You know, there's there's like you know a thousand paper cuts, and in some they they can be killer. But uh, you know, n- n- no problem that you know a lot of crowdfunding people. You know, everybody's capable of necessarily sort of stumbling through it and coming up with a solution. It's just that, you know, it wasn't anticipated. And honestly, every five hours you spend, you know, I don't know whether it's munging something in Excel or like trying to figure out how to like do shipping relays for your T-shirts you want to get printed or um, I don't know, even just like responding to like totally reasonable but like slightly unanticipated like oh, can you please actually ship it to my grandma's house? Like, I'm moving, or ah, I said I wanted the red one, and can I get the blue one instead? And, like, none of those emails, they're totally innocuous, and every project creator who doesn't have a tool has some sort of horrible Excel file that they're, like, right, di- right. diffing over all these, like, you know, survey responses that are coming in, and, um, you know, people necessarily might not be Excel wizards, or, you know. But it takes away, it just eats at you from the time that you should be doing for the actual thing that people wanted you to do. That is 100% true. And then the other thing, too, is I would just say there's kind of a shared – I mean it, it, it's sort of, of – this is my opinion, I guess. But like people who raise money on Kickstarter, by and large, like they're there because they want to see this thing that they imagined like be made into the world. Like they're the most, some of the most passionate, honest people that I've had the, the pleasure to work with. So a lot of times what happens is they take it really personally if someone gets a little bit upset. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of a lot of my customers have never dealt with that before. They haven't necessarily had like a public opinion where you have to, you know, deal with haters or people who get really angry or Oh wow, that's yeah. fascinating. So they've oh, I see I never even thought about it that way. So these people have never really been in the They've been cloistered as designers or whatever, and they're not really part of that. Like, oh my God, this is what people do when they're not. There's no filter, and they just <laughs> come exactly. after and, you. And and you know, I mean, I think you know, plenty of backers get that Kickstarter is Kickstarter, and but some percentage of backers think that they're buying something from Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to like respond to their email immediately with like, yes, I will fully refund that for that thing I sent you, and isn't the color you thought it was. Um, then there. Well, let, let's do the transition here too, because you yeah. you've now this is we're getting into the present year, the present last year. So uh, the end of diaspora. I shouldn't say the end. It was a transition for diaspora. So you've got the unexpectedly large physical part at the front. You guys start in this work, and you, you spent almost two years uh, working away at this as like your full time thing after the project funded. Yeah, I mean it was uh, you know both you know, the happiest and saddest moments of my life. <laughs> it was a total roller coaster. I mean, you know, I'm insanely grateful. You know, I got to go lots of places and meet lots of people. And I mean, I've been like recognized on the street by a random mm. person because of it. I mean, it, it's, it, it's pretty crazy. I'm, I'm actually like, I mean, I'm insanely grateful, but it was also, you know, really hard and painful. And, you know, I definitely, when we first decided we were going to do a Kickstarter, that was not what I thought I'd be doing. You know, for the next two years of my life, that's for sure. But yeah, basically, so what happened is, you know, we sort of were like, okay, like, um, I guess in 2012, we announced it was going to be like a fully community-run project, and that transition started then, and that was sort of me having to mostly, like, force myself to not participate, because I need, you know, when you have a baby and, and you're trying to, like, let it set it free, you can't sit there and be a you know helicopter mom about it <laughs> you know so that was kind of like a really hard sort of painful kind of scary thing too because you know most open source projects actually just fall apart when the founding team steps away um 
Well, there's passionate interest in this. I mean, there's a, yeah. bil- a billion potential people who want to use it. So I imagine there's still a lot of people driving an alternative to any of the locked up solutions that are out there. And, you know, you're, you said uh, like so in 2012, uh, you started handing it off as a, an open project uh, that people could, uh, you know, that you had less, uh, the founders had less control over. And then it's become, as of a few months ago, now it's um, part of a nonprofit. It got sucked into fully into a, into the uh, free software support network that's part of the Software Freedom Law Center. So it's kind of out of your hands entirely, right? The governance and the, the code and all that is this other thing now. Yeah. And I mean, that, that kind of is insanely great. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so cool to have something. I mean, what ends up happening is like, you know, where you've, you've gotten to be a part of making something that someone will argue about it on the internet with you and like <laughs> yell at you and call you names and whatever. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, uh, that's great. That was a crazy, cra- crazy thing. So, but I, you know, I was grateful for what it is and that uh, I'm really grateful to the core team that's still working on it every day. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing project. Um, you know, I kind of just see us as just kind of, you know, lighting the spark and they're kind of carrying the torch. So and I'll put a link in the show notes to join diaspora.com so people can go and look at what's there and then see all the installations uh, that are out there and how um, widely uh, in use it is already, even as it's still under under development. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I've been involved in software in some form since the 1970s when I was a kid and making stuff and distributing software. And, you know, boy, if there's a book called uh, Dreaming in Code that Scott Rosenberg wrote, did you ever see that a few years ago? I have heard of that, yeah. It's um, I, you probably it's good you didn't read it before you started the project because it sort of describes the uh, irreducibility of complexity of predicting how long anything in software takes to do. <laughs> and how basically the entire history of software recapitulates almost how impossible it is, even though there's some techniques that work and there's some better ideas, all that. So, you know, three years down the road to have something that's in use, that's developing, you have a community people are doing, and it's this complicated and big seems like a great, you know, goal to have achieved. And, uh, but you hit, so you hit this mark and you'd already gone through this process of managing backers, managing backer expectations, fulfilling stuff. You have your two years in software development world, more or less. And I'd love to know the, what's the, the origin of backer kit which is your what you've been involved with the last year uh, you know the, i can see the the seeds of the origin how did you go from working on what's become an open source uh free software project into something that's a really you know it's a commercially driven effort that's got a um you know marketing component and is dealing with all this physical stuff at some level what helped you make a transition from one to the other um, you know, it's funny because I guess when Diaspora was, was blowing up and, you know, all this press and because, you know, there was even a expressive moment when I like, you know, before we launched the Kickstarter, you know, I'm like telling my parents, I'm like, mom and dad, I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to do this stuff with my, my friends. Yeah. Like, they're like, okay, I don't know. What's this Kickstarter thing? Like, people are going to give you $10,000 on the internet. Like, yeah, right, kid. <laughs> um, and then, like a month later, it's like blowing up, and you know my face is all over the. You know, did your mother is, did your mother call you and say, "Are you going to jail? What's this no, about?" No, no, no. They were excited. I mean, uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, even even back in 2010, my dad was like, "You should like be writing all this down. You could like write a book or something." You know, where you you, you know all this stuff that you're learning. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's boring. Like we're making software. Like we're not going to help people like do fulfillment. Like yeah, yeah, yeah." And uh, you know, and then kind of as as I was trying to figure out, you know, what's my my next move? I was working with already working with my co-founder Rosanna, um, and you know, we actually after after sort of diaspora got launched out, I like actually went on like a a road trip with my dad across the country, and we were just sort of talking about like uh, what should I do next? And you know, he like brought it up again, and that, and 
you know, it was like, hey, you should do something to like help Kickstarters. You know, it's like gotten so much bigger and like, you know, you saw these problems. And around that time too was when all the articles about like, why are Kickstarter projects late? And I actually got really mad because I just thought all the, all the pundits who were like weighing in, yeah. first of all, none of them have done, had done a Kickstarter project, but I think they were just totally missing their mark um, just as to like why actually it's really slow. Like I, and even when Kickstarter put out the Kickstarter is not a store, I mean, I fundamentally agree with their hypothesis, but I was kind of mad because I feel like they didn't really sit down and actually figure out why. They were just like, oh, well, creative things take a long time. So you just can't rush the creative process. Mm -hmm. And like, I agree with that statement, but there is also tangible things that were happening that basically it was just that people were spending so much time doing stuff they didn't anticipate. And then arguably in 2013 or 12, like they're hard. And, you know, so many things with the consumer internet and makers, you know, things have gotten so much more accessible and easy, but nobody has really solved this problem of like, how do I make it just as easy to raise the money than it is to like organize all these people and make sure all of their, you know, special requests are met and dealt with, you know? So I got really mad because I know when the reason why diaspora was even a little bit late was not because like we hit some code roadblock in the product. It was just like, well, we were, you know, three fourths the team because we were trying to figure out how to order so many damn t-shirts. Let's pause so I can thank one of the sponsors this week, Media Temple, and tell you about a discount they have to offer listeners of The New Disruptors. So those of you who've listened to the show for a while know I've been on the internet seemingly forever. I've been hosting websites and running things like that since about 1993. And I remember the days when going over a gigabyte of data transfer could practically ruin you. There was once I faced a $15,000 bill if I'd gone a, a few bytes beyond the level I reached. So it's always amazing to me to look at the packages you can get for hosting today. And Media Temple's grid service is one of those you should take a, a close look at. It's been the web hosting choice for designers, developers, creative professionals more than any other platform for several years. And their current Grib web hosting plan tells you why. You can host anything from a single portfolio site to a hundred different client projects with one account. They have hundreds of servers in the cloud that are ready to keep the sites online. When you hit the front page of, of Reddit or Dig or wherever, you're going to be ready for that. And here's the thing. They include one terabyte of monthly bandwidth in this $20 per month service, their basic grid service, 100 gigabytes of storage. You get their 24 by 7 live support, 365 days a year. You can contact them through Twitter, email, whatever you like. A thousand email accounts. It's optimized for WordPress. This is what you need to run a professional hosted site. You don't want it to go down and you want to have all these options available. You don't want to lose out when you go viral, when you have somebody who pays attention to what you're doing. Media Temple also offers virtual private server solutions with DV Developer and DV Managed Hosting. You've got those options as well. Now, I've got a special discount for the New Disruptors listeners. Use the promo code TND, that's The New Disruptors, TND, and get 25% off your first month of web hosting. Go to mediatemple.net and enter that promo code TND and get the discount. Give them a try, and then watch what happens when the world pays attention and your sites stay up. And now back to the podcast. That's, wow. I mean, that's the, so that's, let's, let's dig in there, because uh, now that I've gone through the process, I know the, uh, the full pain of it all. Yeah. And, uh, and I always like to preface it, I think we may have already said this 
earlier, I know we were talking about it before the podcast, we were chatting, is that, you know, Kickstarter has a great uh, streamlined process. They just put out, you know, their 2013 numbers just uh, a few days before we're recording this. They had uh, $480 million in pledges by 3 million people in 2013. They're doing something right. And I, I think their collection rate is usually at about like 85%, like 85% of projects fund and they collect the money. So they raised over $400 million, was actually charged. They keep 5%, you know, a few percent for fees. So like $350 million or something was sent out to people uh, for, for tens of thousands of projects. So something is totally right there. And it was enjoyable to deal with most of the way in which Kickstarter works now. And they're great and responsive. I sent questions ahead of time. They gave me fast, good answers. I got information during it. All that was great. But then, as you were talking about earlier, <laughs> you hit the point in which they sort of close up shop and you're on your own. Uh, when you're done with the Kickstarter, you know, your page closes. You can't make changes to the main campaign anymore. And I know, I mean, I should, I was talking about Kickstarter. We've talked about them exclusively because both are, direct experiences have been with them. But you also, Backerkit, you work with four different crowdfunding platforms. You're working with Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and two others that I'm much less familiar with. Oh, yeah, CrowdTilt. And CrowdHoster is actually another sort of CrowdTilt has multiple crowdfunding products. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a different, slightly different flavor. CrowdHoster is actually... Uh, the white well, label style? Yeah, so it's actually an open source platform. It's kind of mm -hmm. like the WordPress to sort of run your own crowdfunding page. Oh, that's great. So you plug in your payment engine like Stripe or something and you plug in uh, other details and it, it, it's, the, it's the back end for you, but it doesn't handle uh, uh, the mechanics of it. I mean, it handles yeah, the mechanics, it, but not the, uh, the financial or, or um, uh, contractual part. Uh, actually, it's interesting. Uh, CrowdTilt, their kind of base product is kind of a, a crowdfunding API. Mm -hmm. so they, they actually are the trusted party that handles just the money, but you can run it on your own website so you can like make it customized or do sort of different things. And they just kind of sort of act as like a plug-in for the payment system. So, oh, I because, see. Okay. I mean, well, a scary thing for running your own crowdfunding campaign on your own website is how are you going to prove to people if you don't hit your goal – that you're going to like give the money back. Yeah. So having like a mechanism that that's all they do, they're just sort of like the payment mechanism. Um, so it gives some people some, some level of security. Oh, I see. That's fascinating. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's quasi escrow or it's set up. It's not exactly escrow by the legal definition, but it's set up to essentially function as escrow for whatever goal you set. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, escrow is an interesting point. There's all these different points um, at which you could offer escrow and different crowdfunding sites uh, like CrowdSupply, for instance. They, there's different stages that where uh, project makers get money based on what kind of crowdfunding site it is. And the Kickstarter one is all or nothing. You hit yep. your goal, and if you hit it, then when it closes, you get your money, and that's it. Indiegogo, you can set a threshold, but you can also you can set a threshold, but you can also say whatever comes in I want, and if you raise 10000 out of 50 you get it. And there's this you know, variety of models. But I was sort of sidebarring yeah. because I want to make sure. I mean, Kickstarter is sort of the big gorilla here by yeah. you know, order of magnitude, I think, or at least many factors. But there's, there's a lot of action going out that for which different people make different choices because of the features of these different sites. But so you're at the end of a crowdfunding campaign. However, whatever goal you set, whatever, it's a successful one by whatever definitions of successful we use. And this is the part where people hit that, that pain point is that, and I certainly hit it as I said, okay, well, I know that you sent out a survey and I start working with Kickstarter system. I'm like, you know, a, and you have to, you know, apologize to Kickstarter cause I don't want to diss them, but man, the survey system is sort of terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's simple. I mean, to some degree, yeah, like... simple, simple. It's rooted yeah. in its origins in, like, 2009 is what it feels like. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, what is interesting, even just 
having us sit through looking at all these a thousand paper cuts that crowdfunding people run into. I mean, like they did actually, even the, their simple survey question, they, they definitely put a lot of thought into. Mm-hmm. I mean, like one problem that's actually huge for like Indiegogo projects or basically every other platform, like even the problem of like correlate, if you sent out like a survey monkey survey, you have the, a nightmare where you're trying to collate like the contact information for someone's response to an actual backing in your project. Right. Right. Like that, again, that doesn't sound like it's a, a really scary problem, but like nobody remembers what email they like signed up to Kickstarter. Nobody reads. So, you know, if someone doesn't put in the same email, then you don't know if they did respond. You don't know who you know who they are whatnot and it just becomes a nightmare at least the kickstarter system like lines all that up for you right Right. so it's interesting because like you know they definitely like thought about it in the beginning but then they're kind of like oh okay any degree of problems past this is kind of really hard to implement kind of really hard really difficult we've already collected the money that's just not our focus yeah and i talked about this a little bit on a a podcast you haven't heard yet it hasn't aired yet but i was talking to uh, dan shapiro who made robot turtles which uh raised over 600 grand and he suddenly had over 25,000 board games to ship out. And he's working with, he has a friend who's got a system uh, not quite like yours, but in beta that we talked about briefly. But um, uh, I don't know if it's exactly a competitor or not, but it's not, it's certainly not released yet. And um, to handle some aspects of this and to handle self uh, guided responses by people and so forth. And Dan hit this point and he had planned fairly well, as I think I had as well. But then you just get, you get sort of bombarded with this like, what? You know, what do I do next? I need to fill out, I need to create surveys as a, um, well, so, so these are the details we, we were talking through. Is just that briefly is that they don't have a template tool for creating surveys. Every reward level is a different survey. Um, and each reward level is only the basic dollar amount for that level. So if someone pledges extra for add-ons that Kickstarter allows you to promote add-ons, but they provide no support for collecting them. So because there's no template, because each survey has to be created separately in their system, if you wound up making a lot of reward levels, and I had a fair number, but not a ridiculous number, you have to create from scratch each survey, and you have to make sure that if you're trying to collate responses from multiple reward surveys, that you've figured out and remembered how to align the responses correctly to match them up with everything. And I did not do a perfect job of that. So there's all that. And then the results come in, and the results are sent, uh, are downloadable comma separated value CSV files that you have to go back and retrieve repeatedly as people update them. You retrieve either one for a specific reward level or all of them as a big archive. And this is a lot of management, especially for people like if it's a small project and maybe they have a few reward levels, they open it up, it opens in Excel and they're great. But then the second time they have to go back, what happens? What information is replaced? Maybe they've modified that first Excel file they made from the CSV file. So forth. So all of these things exist. And I presume this is where you leap in and say, okay, we have a way to work with this. Yeah. So basically, um, BackerKit kind of has two – I mean, the, basically the problems you just outlined are exactly kind of our bread and butter for what BackerKit kind of does right now. But I mean we call it like a, a backer pledge management tool. So mm-hmm. it's got two really important parts. One, sort of this backer front end where – so we basically actually hijack the Kickstarter survey, uh, survey system. We say don't use that. Use our built-in one. Um, you know, we basically we can basically suck in all the information, the raw information Kickstarter gives you. Um, then, ba- then you can make a survey on on Backergate side, which is one a, a fair bit more flexible than Kickstarter's. But two, it's also going to hook into sort of our backer database, basically. So this is basically kind of like a pre 
you know, populated CRM tool that keeps track of what everybody wants. But that also means you can kind of do more complex reporting, figuring out, oh, how many red medium t-shirts against things that are in my reward, or I sold as add-ons, or I gifted away for free, or whatever. It just kind of gives, you know, that's the dream, is that it kind of just gives you a whole list of exactly what you want to make. And it does sound kind of silly that, like, that's actually just by importing, it's saving you hours of time no of having to do with it not on my level but yeah. the, so yeah. the, let me make sure i'm clear too so because the so kickstarter lets you send out a survey directly instead what you're doing is uh we import the someone takes the survey information they don't send out a survey at kickstarter at all right yeah exactly we, you we take the there's a downloadable reward spreadsheets which have the registered kickstarter email and name of all the backers and their assigned backer number in the kickstarter system for your for your campaign if you want that uh and the reward level and like like all the basic data before they answer any questions you can just download that as without doing a survey and that's what you take to pump into your system exactly yeah we actually have a magic thing so you don't even need to download it and awesome. give it to us so yeah you just kind of do a couple clicks you sort of like do a little bit of magic and uh then we just pull all that in it takes like you know 15 clicks maybe I know. So I was going to say, wait, 15? Yeah. yeah, I know, but that's still easier. Because that's the thing is there's this, there's this issue about um, like static data versus databases and how you update things. And I mean, that's the sort of fundamental problem uh, they have certainly is that they're pushing out a static complete file. It's not, this is new data that you could then append to information you have. It's not updated data, like replace this record. It's just a static downloadable, essentially a spreadsheet, you know, CSV that you open in a spreadsheet or, or could import into a file. And that's, the management problem as a as a um, normal human being, or even you know, if I've got thirty years of programming experience behind me, I've worked with databases, and still it's like, oh yeah, I got to parse all this, and okay, what's the oh you know what? Like I hit this problem the other day. I'm sure you know this one. They yeah. don't use um, a consistent date offset. No, have I, you hit that? I didn't notice that. I have had this happen. I'm not sure why, but I have a different – some of the files I downloaded would be offset. So the date offset for for listeners, date offset is, you know, we measure in GMT time on the internet. It's UTC, universal time something, or and, or GMT, meridian time. And uh, that's zero on the internet clock or on the world clock, I should say. And when you're on the internet, you're always doing an offset. You say, okay, Pacific time is minus – 0800 hours. And when you store a time, either you say it's in UTC format, so every, you know you can do your own offsets, but we're measuring from that point, or it's in a local time format, here's the offset. Well, I had this issue where over time I noticed that each time I downloaded the spreadsheet, the offset was in a different... Uh, different. Oh my gosh. And I don't know if that was a bug or whatever, so I had to wind up updating. This is one of the pain points. I had to wind up updating my software when I was checking to see if a response had changed, if someone had actually now gone in and entered the survey or had updated it in it because you have a short period of time which you can edit survey responses as a backer. Um, I needed to double check the time I'd stored and then oh. also calculate the offset, which is not a big deal. As a programmer, you know, yeah. you can you can do that. Yeah. You take it, you run a conversion, you do this, you plug in the offset. But it's another thing where I was like, oh, I thought I already had this solved and I now have overwritten data that, that was not newer because I thought it was newer. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, to me, you know, I guess I'm to some degree not surprised. It's just there's so many small things that, you know, it's not even by like malice or even, no, you know, no. them not knowing. It's just like it's the reality is this is it's a really hard problem, actually. And and people don't really anticipate. I mean, and, you know, we even get that with backer kit. Sometimes we have programmers being like, well, honestly, every programmer you talk to who does run a Kickstarter, they like just basically head slap themselves being like, <laughs> oh, my God, like this is kind of terrible. Um, oh. You know, but at the same time, a lot of people are like, 
I think I'm just going to do my own thing. And I'm like, okay, I'll be here still in a week. Like, just call me back. I already solved all this stuff. Trust me, you don't want to, like, go through the mud of the, the silly things we found that will, you know, make you infuriated. Well, and um, let's, let's walk through the things, too. So here's, you know, so you end up a Kickstarter campaign. In almost every campaign, uh, you know, there are some that are purely electronic. And even then, of course, there's a reason you need to manage it. But some are like, there are campaigns that are like, um, I think Horace Did You ran one for a Simco, this uh, consulting uh um, site about mobile phones that he runs, really great information. And Horace said, oh, you know, people have asked for transcripts of the first year of his podcast, I think it was, like uh, it's a year plus ago. So we put up a campaign. It's like, well, our minimum cost to produce something, we can do print on demand, we can do electronic versions, but, you know, it costs this much and whatever, so I need to raise this many dollars. And he had one reward, and the thing was you'd either get, or maybe it's two, you could either get an electronic version or a print on demand, you know, bound version. That was it, Right. And But he had thousands of people wind up signing up. So even with two items, though, he still got the issue. How does he know if someone received it? How does he update the email address? How does he update the mailing address? And that's almost the simplest case. Now, most campaigns that um, that I've seen have some kind of add-on. Uh, now, do you know the, uh, the Dr. Demento movie that's being made? I don't know if that was on your radar. I don't, year. but it sounds awesome. If you're a Dementoid, you should find it. It's in process now. And they raised uh, a fairly decent amount of money. I interviewed uh, the director of that a few months ago, and they have a matrix of add-ons because Dr. Demento fans like the goods. Yeah. yeah, and they had stuff that you could not get except from the good doctors. So they had a matrix <laughs> on their site like, okay, come in at this reward level, and if you want the kazoo, the blah, the this. And I don't know how they managed in the back end. They said it all worked out very well, like they had figured it out. But the reason to do it, and I, I think you would agree with me, is that there's uh, all this – say extra money that sounds like you're taking money from people but people want to give at various levels so i put in my campaign we had a 25 to 35 dollar ebook hardcover bundle as we got closer to the total i did something that i've been told by a lot of people which is throw in an add-on at the end so that people want to stretch they want to help you reach the total they could throw in ten dollars or 25 or something so i had okay we're going to do meetups in san francisco or seattle ten dollar meetup ticket ten dollars for an archive of our first year's issues and I think like $2,000 came in in the space of a day or so just from that. People who wanted to help further, I'm looking at your site right now as we speak, so recording in mid-January, uh, $2.5 million in add-ons purchased through BackerKit. And that's part of the message, right, is that you're not trying to extract more money from people, but the add-ons above maybe preset reward levels are actually really useful to the success of a campaign. Well, you know, I'm really happy you brought this up because I think we, we kind of look at it and just what we've seen. I mean, we've helped hundreds of projects now is like, so it, it's kind of my, from doing diaspora, the, the thing that's actually the most valuable thing about doing a crowdfunding, I mean, uh, crowdfunding campaign, you know, obviously the money is great and you get to make a product. And at the end of the day, you as the person have the product that you can continue to sell or whatnot. But to me, what I've seen as the actual, the most valuable thing is that basically like your biggest fans, like self-select into this group of people. Um, you know, to some degree, these are the people who are like your diehard. And, and if you're a maker and you make, whether it's like pens or a board game or a video game, right? It's like these are the people who like they love everything that you do. So mm-hmm. kind of what we tell people is like you want to do whatever you can to make their experience great. So if you decide to do something else, they're going to be the first people to line up whatever the heck it is because really a crowdfunding project is like you know you get this item that's a conversation piece, right? It's like it's like oh yeah, it's this guy who makes, you know, 
he makes freaking custom pens in his shop, right? And it's like, and then now he's making a flashlight, and I just, I gotta get it. The pen was so cool, you know? Um, and this is what happens, and we have a lot of customers who've, like, done repeat projects, and if, it, if they've made it their goal, just, like, make their backers happy, it just becomes into this engine of making that this person now doesn't have to have a real-time job. They can be, like, an independent person who, like, does a Kickstarter every six months for whatever cool thing they want to make. And you just see that base coming back again and again and again. That's – and though I, I try to divide that up into um, when you have the backers. Some people come and back you. Like, I had 300-something people pledge $16,000 in the first 24 24- hours of my campaign. Those are the people who are there for you. I mean, they're not coming in for the book because they just heard about it. They don't know. Or the thing that you made or diaspora. They're like, this is a great idea. I've, I've gone into campaigns. Someone I know, it's like, uh, you know, if I, anybody ever comes to me now, I'm going to mark myself as an easy mark. Right. Anybody I know and like ever comes to me and says, I'm raising money for cancer, this, that, that I'm in for 25, 50, 75, whatever I can afford at the moment. If it's, you know, donation, I'm there. And so that's that you have that wave of people, those people, like you. And then there's a slightly bigger audience, maybe different, that is interested in anything you do, as you say, and they want a thing that you make or you're associated with that might be bigger than just supporting you for you. That those two audiences can be sometimes a bit, they're not always the biggest part, but they can sometimes be the biggest part of your Kickstarter backer group. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they're definitely like an important part. You definitely in Kickstarter. Nine ninety nine out of a hundred times need like a good first three days is really important to mm-hmm. your campaign. But uh, getting back to the add-ons though is like yeah. the reason why we support that and think it's really important because it's those people who like love what you're doing. They want to get exactly what they want, right? And because they're really excited about it. So you know, I a hundred percent agree that to some degree it's not necessarily about like extracting more money about it. It's that these backers who are buying stuff would send the project creator like a hundred emails asking them if they could like PayPal them money to give them more stuff. Right. Or I'm sure you probably had a couple of people who like doubled up their pledge, just assuming you would send them to. I had one person who liked round numbers. And so every time we reached some goal where we were like $50, $40 away from like even thousand, they would just increase their pledge. I think in the end they gave $260, (laughs) which was awesome. They're getting all kinds of cool stuff as a result. Yeah. Yeah, but so I mean, I think that to some degree, it's about having this conduit to just like make sure that, you know, you, you know, these people are important. You want to make them happy, and for some percentage of people, making them happy is like letting them get exactly what they want. So I mean, that's really what we see. Kind of add-ons are a really important part, and certainly it's one of these things that it, it's rampant on Kickstarter. Not to mention that, like, um, I mean, another fundamental problem if you do more than just maybe a single add-on, you know, you have people. If normally the way add-ons work is it's like, hey, I have these five items ranging from five to twenty dollars. Just add the right amount to your pledge, and we'll figure it out later what mm-hmm. you you pledge this random sixty-two dollars extra for. Oh yeah, well exactly. I have some people are like, okay, I wound up giving one hundred and thirty-two dollars. What can I get? I'm like, you can get whatever you want. Like, let's go yes. through the list. Like, you want a T-shirt? You want three subscriptions? You want like whatever? Then there's the other thing which you also support, and I think this is an overlooked part. I want to emphasize it. So we think about Kickstarter because they're so efficient at collecting money or Indiegogo or any of the others as being the end point at which you collect money, right? But as you well know, people sometimes forget to put in international shipping for an item. They're like, I pledged, I had someone during my campaign, they didn't understand the Kickstarter system. And and I understand why. It doesn't happen often, but they thought they were pledging actually a total of $130 and only pledged 10 because they thought they were adding additional levels when they went back. They didn't see that it was resetting it. All these people want to give you stuff. This can be 
five, ten, it can be the difference between being able to afford to fulfill something for someone because you need the $25 international shipping to send it to them, or it could be all this extra stuff. So you have a post collection stage. The campaign's over. We email all these people and I did the same thing. I mean, I think I've had an easily another thousand dollars come in on top of the 56,000 or so during the campaign from people adding stuff or having forgotten to pay some add-on during it. And that's part of your approach, that you can reach out and say, you didn't have time to do this during the campaign, it's not too late. Yeah, so I mean, one of the beautiful things about BackerKit is, I mean, we sort of, you know, because you already have to ask your backers sort of for their address in the survey, we just kind of make this three-step process that if they go through it, they can add more money, they can add missing mm-hmm. money, they can add more items, you know, they can do whatever they want. And if they can just complete those three steps and they get, you know, the green mark and backer kit, you know they're good to ship to. You have all the information you need. They all, they're all paid up. You know, you know they, they selected exactly what it is that they wanted. You know, you just kind of like... It just automates the whole process for you because I'm not sure. Did you like PayPal invoice or Amazon invoice? No, I'm lucky because I've inherited a system for the magazine that was designed by the very good Marco Arman. And so it's beautifully designed and it's integrated with Stripe. So I already have full Stripe integration. I'd learned how to extend Stripe, which has a beautiful – God, you know, sometimes I swear I sound like an advertisement for them. They are not a sponsor of this podcast. They they could be if they wanted to, I'm sure. But Stripe – you work with Stripe, right? That's one of the – yeah, that, that, that it is our payment processor as yeah. well. So. And the other thing is that Stripe, Stripe is credit card payment processing written for programmers as opposed to written for – I don't know who the other systems are written for. Written by marketing banks. people. I, ba- banks. Yeah, banks, right? It's a non-legacy thing. So everything at Stripe is wonderful. And you ask them a question, they have a good answer or they update their system because you ask them a question like, oh, well, we should do that. And so we'll add a field or a state. So um, I had a system in place and I could say – all right, go here and punch in this amount and what it's for, and I will add it to my database. You know, so they could just pay with Stripe directly, get a receipt. I could see it, but most people don't have access. And then you're right. Then they're going into PayPal, or they're having to collect money in bits and pieces, or maybe with Square, where they could punch in a transaction. But it's not easy. What you're doing is it's completely integrated and tied into the database of all their backers support or other supporters backers. Exactly, and then they're they're not doing silly things like trying to cross reference their lists. Uh, you know, to some degree, and it, you know, it gives them a nice thing to say, this person, you know, and, and then when it comes time to fulfill it, right, which is a whole nother scary world, um, uh, you know, it's like, then it gives them a report that, you know, fulfillment computers like to use, which is all itemized, and like, doesn't matter if they add it on later, it's part of their reward tier, like, they're getting two medium red t-shirts, it's English, it doesn't matter, like, you know, when they bought it, it just all goes into the same report, and, Mm. you know, it's one less thing that people, and again, you know, that is, it's ridiculous how, it sounds really dumb, like, oh, you should just have an export that you can just see everything, and turns out, you know. No, every step is multiplied. Everything becomes a special case, and I'm dealing with that now. Even though I have a fairly streamlined system, of course, the you know the one thing I made a mistake with, I forgot to put one question on the survey, and I've probably spent 20 hours dealing with the fallout from it. And everyone's happy because they send me email. Like, oh, yeah, I've taken care of it, or I figured out from their pledge something was missing and sent them email automatically, but every little bit. So there's two more things I want to talk about so we don't go on for too long. I want to ask you two more things about the system because I think these are both additional uh, points of interest and pain points. So shipping. So shipping is a huge deal. How to calculate it, how to integrate tracking numbers. Have you guys tackled not like market as ship, check this box, it's been sent off. But do you have integration yet with shippers or is that something that you can do? 
Uh, so yeah, we do have some integration with a couple different fulfillment companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a little like you know the the, the basic feature is give them an export so they can you know pro- pack it in their their warehouse and ship it back, and then they can you know ship us a CSV of the. Uh, you know, tracking numbers, and we can upload to the system, and then That's any backer great. can always log back in and get all of that information. So That's it's, super it's, cool. Yeah, so it's the same thing also with digital goods too. Is is kind of a, a a touch of a problem too, right? Anytime you need to kind of duplicate that database, that list of backers somewhere else is somewhere where we want to help you to be like, this is the one place your backer goes about to get their stuff for your project. Yes, that's what I'm lucky and a lot of people aren't is I had a user database because we had subscribers. And so our subscriber database is now a subset and it's, you know, cross-referenced with the backer database. So not all backer, all backers now have accounts in our system. So even without having a subscription, they can log in and see this, but I had to, you know, I had to build this. And yeah. again, this, so this is, this leads into the second question, which is the, uh, the API issue. And for, for listeners who are not programmers, an API is an application programming interface. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's a way for you as a programmer to talk to a system you didn't develop. Sometimes I think about it. I mean, usually you can write APIs for your own systems, but it's a standardized way to talk to a foreign system, let's say, that you want to interact with like a black box. And you want to say, okay, Kickstarter, uh, give me this information in some form I want. Give me a you know, formatted JSON object or whatever. So Kickstarter currently does not have an API. They have CSV downloadable stuff. And you figure out how to put yourself in that process so someone can log in. They don't have to give you their Kickstarter or other crowdfunding site credentials. You can grab those spreadsheets and plop them in and update them in your system. So that's great. Kickstarter will imagine, you know, ostensibly someday have an API where you can just query where do you fit in when Kickstarter Kickstarter has an API? Do you still have a role here as a post-processing helper? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's kind of the the bigger picture here, which I'd I'd love to sort of segue into is, uh, Hmm. you know, I mean, so, you know, BackerKit as a whole is betting on that crowdfunding is going to be something that becomes huge. Right over the next year, and whether it's Kickstarter or Indiegogo, I mean, I mean, I, I'm super grateful to Kickstarter because I think it's teaching consumers about like what is crowdfunding and some of the attributes of crowdfunding. But I also think that you know they've kind of coupled together a bunch of things that people maybe right now think is about crowdfunding, but maybe yes. isn't the essential part of it. I don't mean to say this as a diss, but it's kind of I mean we're in like the MySpace days of crowdfunding, right? Like MySpace taught people like what friends are and posting around and like what those interactions kind of can do. But there's tons of innovative ways in the future um, that people are going to be applying crowdfunding. Well, there's and- a whole constellation of things happening already, right? Like we were, you're talking about your know, crowd tilt, and I was mentioning crowd supply, and there's all these, uh, there's crowd, there's fulfillment, back end fulfillment companies. Now there's one in Brooklyn, of course, that does the yeah. um, the back end. Uh, once you've done your campaign, they take it over. There's companies that will help you manage front to end, launch your campaign for you, run it produce it, ship it, mail it, send you checks. So all of that, that whole ecosystem is developing as we reach, you know, Kickstarter plus everybody else is probably at least a half a billion dollars now, probably well over half a billion dollars. And it's growing at, you know, rates that are at least still in the well high double digits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we kind of call it the, the crowdfunding stack is something mm-hmm. that still hasn't really be f- fully developed. And But I think some of the things that to me that are essential about crowdfunding, again, and this is from my own experience, is like... If, if you think about it and you take a step back, like crowdfunding is just really 
smart capitalism to some degree, right? Like you, you, you're measuring demand and getting all the money up front and you don't have to make anything first. It's a right? great the, pre-order system. It's right. like the most efficient yeah. pre-order system we've ever developed. Yeah. Or yeah. Or even just like an idea funding system, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever, you know? Um, and so to some degree, like all the small business tools and stuff, you know, there's this inherent assumption that like you have stuff that you're trying to move off the shelf. Right. It's like something you already made, but an order is something that's like you have the inventory somewhere and then you need to immediately get it to that person as fast as possible. But with crowdfunding, it, it, it's all turned on its head. And so there's all these new problems that exist when basically you're front loading all the money and the demand. I mean, to me, that's kind of what this economy looks like, because whether it's, you know, or it's kind of like your your patron system that you're using to raise money, you know, it is all kind of about like basically front-loading it as much as possible and then delivering something after the fact. And, uh, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I really think as crowdfunding grows, you know, maybe crowdfunding won't be a word that we use every day. It'll become like, I don't know, like the information superhighway. Just j- just because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think like commerce is just going to get more crowdfunding-like, right? I just think like some of these smart ideas are just going to permeate into way the way that we buy things and fund things and, and just – that kind of thing. So those sort of fundamental tectonic changes are going to need tools that are sort of smart to the fact that it's like, great, you have a bunch of people, you're going to give them something, you know, you need, there's some sort of latency between when they gave you the money and they told you they want it to when they actually are going to get it. And uh, that's kind of the space we see ourselves occupying. So certainly, you know, we are totally in the, in the mud of solving Kickstarters, like a thousand paper cuts right now, because that's where these problems are sort of just starting to crop up. But these are going to turn into more like fundamental, you know, issues with fulfillment and, you know, how do we make things in the future and, you know, what is an order? What is people buying stuff? So I'm excited because like, yeah, Kickstarter could, you know, three product designers at Kickstarter could definitely fix some of the things that we solve, but there's still so much more there that's really hard that really Kickstarter for us is just a way to get at, you know, these basically pioneers of this new economy, right? The people who are selling stuff like that. Yeah, it's very interesting. We're all the bleeding edge, but the bleeding edge is not that bloody anymore. It's kind of nice. It's just this one little the, the paper cut. I think metaphor is better than like a big slash. Like, like fundamentally, a lot of things have been figured out, and we're working on the stuff that's still got a lot of friction in it. But wow, it's a, it's a smooth ride for a lot of the way. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like you know, it, people raising making fundraising so easy is obviously such a, such a huge part of it. But now it's you know making the thing that we got to smooth out, just like Kickstarter. That's my that's my next goal. We're getting closer. As this po- when this podcast airs, we'll be uh, imminently uh, sending stuff to the printer. I think so. Uh, can, I can put that in the show notes too. Maxwell, right. thank you so much for talking about the. You know, your young man. Your two businesses have been quite successful so far. I would say, <laughs> Diaspora, great project that you put off into good hands. And Backer Kit sounds like a great new thing. A year into it now, and uh, a lot more to grow on with um, the growth of the entire industry. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about all this. Thanks. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. 
You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.